Well, if you got a Bible, we'll go to the book of Acts chapter 1, where uh, Aaron read for us just a moment ago. And uh, we are on week 8 of a learning journey through the Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient summary of the Christian faith that has been uh, utilized and practiced and rehearsed and proclaimed by uh, followers of Jesus for many, many centuries now, all around the world, in all different traditions and denominations within Christianity. And so for us, this is a way of focusing in on what are the core things, what is the main story or the main narrative that we are, have received as followers of Jesus. Christianity isn't something we make up. It's a received faith. We don't get to decide what we believe and what we don't as followers of Jesus. That's a gift that's given to us, ultimately from God himself through the story of the scriptures, but also through the history of the, of the saints that have gone before us. And so we're going line by line through this ancient creed, and this morning we come to the line that talks about uh, Christ's ascension. So last week, Nathan uh, spoke on the resurrection of Christ, essentially what we celebrate at Easter every year, the, the death of death, the victory of God over humanity's worst threat, and how in the resurrection we see Jesus as what Paul would call the first fruits of all creation, that as God raised Jesus from the dead, so now that resurrection power is unleashed into the world, and we also get to experience the resurrection of the dead in our own lives, here in the present tense, and then ultimately in the day that we look forward to in the age to come. And so <clears throat> the passage that we read in Acts this morning talks about what happens after Jesus' resurrection, which is crazy, right? There's uh, somebody that died, and now we have historical accounts of their life on earth after uh, they died and then rose again. In fact, if you come to Israel with me next year, we will actually walk on the road uh, to Emmaus, which is a historical site um, for where Jesus walked after he was dead right, after he had risen again, which is an amazing thing. And so we're told that for these 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he spends time with his disciples and he speaks to them about the kingdom of God, about the in-breaking reality of God's governing reign of love and justice on the world, that the seeds have been planted in the soil of the earth, have resurrected out of the grave with Christ, and we know one day will become the new heavens, the new earth, the new reality that we long for and look to. And so the line we get to this morning is that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right of the Father. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right of the Father. And so for many of us who have grown up in the Christian tradition, even if we haven't followed the church or liturgical calendar very clearly, closely, there are several Christian holidays that uh, pretty much everybody celebrates, at least within the Western world, right? The first is Christmas, and it's the day we celebrate the incarnation of God, the birth of Jesus into the world. And then for a lot of us, we skip to Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. For many of us, we, in the middle there, we might hit Maundy Thursday or Good Friday or something like that. And then for some Christians, they'll skip forward to Pentecost, which is 50 days after the resurrection, the day when Jesus unleashes his spirit upon his church. But what we often forget, or maybe not even be aware of, is that 
central to the church calendar, this telling of time according to the life of Jesus, there is an ascension day. There's an ascension day that lands 40 days after Easter. And very few of us even know what you would do to celebrate the ascension day, right? Like, we don't know which colors we're supposed to wear or which songs we're supposed to sing or anything like that. It maybe just comes and goes. It's hard to buy a card um, to wish somebody a happy ascension day. And uh, my whole point is that somehow this moment in the story of Jesus' life and ministry has really been overlooked Culturally, of course, but even theologically, I don't know that we really have taken much time collectively to understand and examine and wrestle with the implications of the story of Christ ascending from earth back to the Father. And so that's what we're going to talk about um, this morning. And so in the last few weeks, we've been talking about what Jesus did and accomplished in the past in his conception, in his birth, in his life, in ministry, in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection. And then starting next week, we're going to talk about the things that Jesus promises to do and accomplish in the future, in his second coming, in the judgment, in the filling of his church with his spirit as we anticipate all things made new. So we've been in the past of Jesus' life and ministry, and we will go to the future. This morning, for this one Sunday, we're going to talk about what's Jesus up to in the present tense. Where is Jesus right now? And what is Jesus doing in the world? And why does that matter as followers of Jesus, that we don't just think about him in the past or in the future, but we hold both of those as they overlap in the presence, in the present. Maybe there's presence too, but there's also a present, and that's what we're talking about. So um, maybe this is a question that has been posed to you by your kids, or maybe when you were a kid, this is a question you asked a parent or a Sunday school teacher. And the question simply asks is, where is Jesus right now? Um, how many of you asked that question at some point in your upbringing? What are some of the answers that you might have gotten? Where is Jesus? I can't see him, but we talk to him, and we talk about him like he's alive. So where is he? What would you say? Say it again. He's in our hearts, right. So Jesus is somehow living within us. And he is so close that he's not just next to us, but he's actually in us. And so some of the language many of us adopted early on, when we have a conversion experience, especially as a kid, it's an invitation to ask Jesus into our hearts. Good. What else might you say? Where is he? Jesus is in heaven, which if you look at the text, that would be a good indication that there's this domain or dimension of reality outside time and space that is very, very real, it just operates in a whole different way than the world we know of. It's the domain of God, the reign of God, the kingdom and the presence of God, and we are told that Jesus ascends to that place. Any other answers? He's at the right hand of the Father. So it's this imagery of a king on a throne and Jesus living in perfect communion or relationship uh, with the Father. What else? Everywhere, right? That Jesus is all around us. That Jesus is everywhere we go. We, it's the answer to the psalmist's question, where can I go to escape your presence? Where can I go to flee your company? And the answer of the ascension is nowhere, 
You can't get away from him, even if you wanted to. All right? So we've got Jesus is in our hearts. Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is at the throne of God. Jesus is everywhere. Which one is true? All of them. Very good. You guys are so smart. All of them are somehow true, which is a confusing thing, especially when we start to try to tell that to our kids. Like, yeah, he's in your heart, but he's also in heaven, and there's a throne, and then somehow he's everywhere. It's like, I got a big heart, or I don't know how that all fits together. Um, Here's the first thing I'd say. I just want to deal with this concept of heaven, because we do, in the text, have this picture of Jesus physically ascending from the earth, going vertical and disappearing into the clouds. And for many of us, that then gives us this picture of heaven is actually like this physical physical domain beyond the clouds, and we even had a song in Sunday school that said, somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who trust him and obey, right? Terrible. It's not in outer space. (laughs) Heaven is not like out by Mercury or something like that. Um, Even in our language, we use the word ascend in multiple ways. And there is a physical, geographical sense in which Christ ascends, but we also use the term ascend to talk about uh, achieving a new reality, ascending to first place in your league, ascending to the top of your class, ascending to the head of your company, ascending to the throne of England or whatever. Like We're not talking about a physical ascension. We're talking about the ascension of, of place and of power, the ascension of governance or rule or in, in, in authority or something like that. And so I would argue that what the author of Acts is depicting here as he tells this story is, yes, we do think that the disciples saw Jesus physically lift into the air, but no, we don't think his ascension was primarily about him being the first astronaut and going off to some physical throne in the sky that we would be able to see if we could fly up high enough. Here's how Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 talks about the importance and the significance of the ascension of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's Paul's best stab using incredibly potent and powerful language to say, here's the significance of Christ's ascension, that he now fills everything in every way. The ascension means that the incarnation is not over. That Jesus is still just as human as he ever was. And he's still one of us. He's still the firstborn of all humanity, the ultimate human being who has gone before us. And he has risen from the dead. And now he dwells today in perfect communion with the Father as he reigns over all of creation. And so ascension is about the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God, to his rightful place as the king of the universe. 
And so if, I would imagine that if we were there that day at this story at the beginning of Acts and we're hanging out with Jesus, the king who's been resurrected and is ushering in God's kingdom, and then all of a sudden he says, guys, I'm done and I got to go, and he floats off into the clouds, that would be a bummer right? Like that would not seem like good news to his early disciples. And in fact, we see this picture down in verse uh, 14 or no, verse 11, where the angel's like, guys, why are you just standing there looking in the sky? Well, that's exactly what you would be doing, right? Like, do you think he's coming? What just happened, right? That would not, that would be a bummer for most of us if we were in it at that moment, And the reality is that we could still get into that place of going, yeah, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was still here on earth physically, bodily, humanly as he was back then? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom? Um, And so we look at the ascension and go, yeah, that's kind of a bummer that he's now gone. But what Paul and other New Testament writers help us to see is that in the ascension, Jesus isn't evacuating himself from the earth. He's not escaping from the world. He's not abandoning humanity. But he is now dispersing himself to fill everything in every way, to become the all in all of all people in all places. And so this language of being seated at the right hand of the Father, the significance of that goes way back to ancient history where you have a throne and a king would be seated there. And in your left hand, as a soldier, you would hold your shield and on your right hand, you would hold your weapon, your sword or whatever you have. And so your left side would be protected, but your right side would be vulnerable. And so the king's most trusted uh, soldier his closest advisor, kind of his number two person, would stand at his right because the king would need to be able to trust that person more than anyone else. And so this custom has gone throughout many different cultures where the guest of honor or the closest advisor or the most important person in the room would would be seated at the right hand of the host. It's a seat of honor. It's a seat of significance. And this is the picture that now Jesus has ascended to this seat of honor, this seat of kingly authority over all creation. And so when the New Testament writers speak of the ascension of Christ, they're not describing Jesus' absence from the earth, but they're describing his sovereign presence over all. He has not gone away but he has somehow become even more fully present. He's been publicly enthroned uh, all over the world. All right, so this is a mysterious idea, um, and there will be a ceiling of mystery that we get to as we receive this doctrine of the faith, that there's a point where we just can't quite explain it, but I think there's a long ways we can go in actually wrestling with it, and I think the day and age that we live in with the I generation and all that kind of stuff, actually helps us with a picture. And it has to do with technology and the internet and all that kind of stuff. Do you remember when the internet first went mainstream like 20 years ago? 
And if you wanted to get online, you would go somewhere where there was a computer that you would plug into the little dial-up modem. It'd make this terrible screeching, satanic sound, and then all of a sudden, you could check your email, or you could go to a chat room, or <laughs> something like that, right? And uh, you're watching the clock really carefully, because you probably had to pay by the minute, or something like that, and then you'd log off, maybe because your mom needed to make a phone call, and you couldn't do both those things at the same time. And then you'd go, you'd go offline until the next time you had a chance to get on the internet. Things have changed significantly, right? Or think about um, if you're a music person, somebody that has a music collection. Uh, when I was in high school, I spent all the money I could find buying CDs, right, of all my favorite bands, and then I kept all my CDs in one of those huge black binders, right, and then I'd drive it around in my car, and um, that thing got stolen so many times, but was always sweet because you could turn it into the insurance company and then rebuy all the CDs you liked and then, you know, pocket the extra. But that's just the weirdest thing that we drive around with thousands of dollars of plastic circles in our car. And then I remember getting my first laptop, you know, 15 years ago or whenever that was, and you could download music. And so you didn't have to buy a physical thing, you could download an album, and then it would be on your computer. And then at one point, I'm on a road trip and somebody spills a bunch of orange juice on my computer, and I lost all my music again, right? Thousands of dollars. That's not a problem we deal with anymore, right? Trying to access our music collections. Um, because of what? What happened? The cloud. The cloud is here now, right? And some of you guys are smart and read books and know things about computers and networks and software and data centers. I don't really know what the internet is um, or the, what the cloud is, but that sense of mystery does not actually keep me from enjoying it and utilizing it on a regular basis. Right? It will now be very hard for me to ever lose my music collection because I don't even, it's not something I have in a geographic location. It's in the cloud. <laughs> so, what has become of this thing we call the internet? That 20 years ago, our best description was that it's a series of tubes, right? But now we could actually say that it fills everything in every way. You do not need to go to an internet cafe to check your email, right? We carry the internet around in our pockets. We can't escape from the signals all around us. It literally fills everything in every way. Where can you go to escape it? Where can you flee to, to get away from his presence? You can't. You really can't. Now, when it comes to technology, I think we could argue whether that's a good thing or bad thing. I think many of us are aware of some of the pitfalls of being so connected and so uh, accessible all the time and the, and the tendency towards addiction on our phones and that sort of thing. And so there's a lot that we could say. And in fact, I even began to grieve a couple years ago the fact that I wouldn't have a physical music collection to pass on to my kids or something like that. So I started buying vinyl records again. And one day I'll be able to gift, you know, a stack of records that I think are really good. So it's a weird thing that way. Um, but when it comes to the presence and the person of Jesus, 
The fact that he now is able to fill everything in every way is very, very good news. That he is literally all around us, that there's nowhere we can go where he is not present. And there's nothing even within our own story, within our own psyche, within our own pain and struggle and fear and trauma. There's no part of that that can exclude Jesus. And so in his ascension, in his ascension at a very base level, here's what we celebrate. That during incarnation, during his life in ministry on earth, Jesus' presence was limited to one place at one time. In the incarnation, he limited himself to the realm of space and time that all of us operate in. If you wanted to be with Jesus, if you wanted to hear Jesus, if you wanted to see Jesus, if you wanted to get to know Jesus, you literally had to be in close physical proximity to him. Do you remember that story when uh, Lazarus is sick and dying and his sisters send for Jesus, but he's three days away and when he finally shows up, Lazarus has died and his sisters go, Jesus, if you had been here, things could have been different. And we start to understand just how crazy that was. That because Jesus was three days away, which for us is just a few miles, that things could have been different. And so the good news of the ascension is that that will never be part of our story. That Jesus, if you would have been there, if Jesus, you had been closer, if Jesus, you weren't so far away, if you weren't busy somewhere else, if you weren't distracted doing something else with someone else, then my life would have been different. The ascension says that game is over and Jesus fills everything in every way. That his presence is accessible to every person in every place we have immediate access to the presence of Christ. And so here's what's so interesting to me. Can I get a clock, Kip? I'm getting carried away and I don't know what's happening here. Oh, Kip's gone. Great. Anybody else know how to do a clock? (laughs) What's that? (laughs) That I have to go the other way. Math doesn't work for me. Um, So here's what's awesome, is as we talk about Jesus in the present tense, ascended to the heavens, to the domain of God, in his rightful place as the king of the universe, uh, interceding on behalf of humanity, present and accessible to all people at every, everywhere, then that changes the way that we think about our relationship with Jesus and our participation in his world. So notice this kind of rebuke from the angels when they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking to the sky? What are they implying? That we're not just here waiting for the second coming and hoping that things are going to work out in the end, but the invitation then is to carry out in what we would see in the book of Acts is we've got work to do. We've got work to do, and the work we've got to do is to be part of Jesus' ongoing mission in the world. I love at the very beginning of Acts, if you don't know, the book of Luke and the book of Acts 
were written both by the same author and are meant to be part one and part two. So in most of our Bibles, the Gospel of John lands between them and breaks up that continuity. But if you want to read this whole story of Jesus and then the birth of the church, read Luke and Acts uh, together. And so when he says in verse 1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus had began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So the former book he's referring to is the Gospel according to Luke. And how does he describe the content of the narrative of Luke? All that Jesus began to do. Which implies that the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do. That what we have in this story of the early church and the proclamation of the gospel and the establishing of kingdom communities throughout the ancient world is a picture of the ongoing mission and work of Christ in his world. This is the early picture of what it looks like when the ascended Christ, honored and glorified, exercising his kingship throughout creation through his Holy Spirit, utilizing and working within people like you and I. And so in the book of Acts, we have the story of all that Jesus continued to do. So don't stand there gazing at the sky. Don't take your hand off the plow or your eye off the job. Don't just disregard this world in hope that uh, everything will work out. He's going, we've got work to do. We get to join Jesus in his ongoing active mission in the world in the present tense. So the ascension And the exaltation of Christ actually changes not just the way we see Jesus, but the way we see the world. And I'll pose it to you like this in several shifts. Instead of asking, what would Jesus do? We can ask, what is Jesus doing? Instead of asking, how can I be Jesus to this person? We can ask, where can I find Jesus in this person? Instead of asking, how can I bring Jesus to this place as if he's never been there before, we get to ask, what is Jesus already up to here? How is Jesus already at work in this place? And we get to receive his invitation to be participants in his active, ongoing, kingly, redemptive, reconciling work, filling all in all. What an incredible journey. Many of you would be familiar with the prayer of St. Patrick, who uh, went before us in a way that uh, is really worth reading about and and learning about. I won't go into all the history, but he has this famous prayer that's been passed down. And there's this one little part of it towards the end where he prays this, May Christ shield me today. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand. It's an incredible uh, prayer. And it's a prayer that acknowledges the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus to his rightful place over all creation as king. It's a prayer that acknowledges the inescapability of Jesus' presence 
and the instant, immediate, universal access that he's granted all people everywhere to be with him, to know him, to hear from him, and to become like him. I want to take in our last few minutes together just a few of these lines and try to help practically uh, uh, wrestle with what does this look like, not just to pray a prayer like St. Patrick's, but to actually let it shape our reality and dictate the way that we understand who Jesus is, what Jesus is doing, and what it means to participate and to pay attention to it. So we'll take that line, Christ above me. This is the exaltation of Jesus, the high above all creation, the name above every name, the, the, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the word of God, who in the form of a, of a human has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is now over all. Christ is king, Christ above me, the Lord of all creation not just an inspirational figure from history, not just a spiritual guru or a prophet or anything like that, but God in human form has ascended to the throne of the universe. Christ is above us and therefore is worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, worthy of our gratitude, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our complete and total loyalty and commitment worthy of our entire life over which he governs. And so the challenge of this part of the prayer is to say, where have I not allowed Christ to be exalted in my life? Where have I demoted him to my personal assistant or to my inspirational teacher or to my helper as opposed to seeing myself as a subject in his glorious and unshakable kingdom? Does my worship, does my, the, the direction my heart is facing, does my uh, life in all of its different parts reflect the ultimate exaltation and kingship of Jesus, Christ above me? Christ below me, which seems like a weird thing to say. If he's above us, then how can he also be below us? But this is that picture of incarnation, this humble God who reduces himself to humanity, the creator who connects himself to creation, who takes on a body and blood and has this primordial connection with the mountains and the trees and the birds and the fish. And it opens up our eyes to see the very soil that we walk on and the family of humanity. None of that is separated from God now because he has joined himself to it and given all of nature, all of creation as a sacramental gift. This is why when we hike in the mountains, when we swim in the ocean, when we walk under a beautiful moonlit sky, there's a sense that Jesus is all in all, that this beauty, this majesty, this creativity of the natural world is an outpouring of God's creative and expressive love for us. The Christ is below us. So not just in those moments where we experience him as enthroned and great and powerful and good, but in those simple moments of like a really good peach and a really cute baby and a beautiful song in a good conversation. Christ is beneath us. Christ before me, in front of me, 
visible to me. Like, I can't miss him. There are moments in my life where his presence is so real, so palpable, almost tangible to the senses, where he, he is there and it's undeniable that I can see him right in front of me. I can see his fingerprints all over my life or all over the lives of those around me where I can clearly see him at work where there was like a before and after because of what Jesus has been doing. There are moments in life where Christ is before us. And there's different moments for all of us. For some of us, it's these kinds of moments where we gather with the saints to worship, to receive bread and wine, to pray, to engage the scriptures, to love each other. This feels like Christ is before me. This is where I go to meet him. For others of us, it probably wouldn't be our primary Jesus language, right? We escape to the mountains or to the hills or whatever it is. For some of us, it's deep study and theology and literature and history that somehow draws you into the presence of Christ. For some of you, it's community, conversation, relationships, stories, going deep with one another. For others of us, it's solitude, withdrawing just to go and to sit in the stillness and the quiet presence of Christ. There's all different pathways that God gives us to bring us into an attentiveness of Jesus' presence. And that's the beauty of it, that there's a million different ways that Christ presents himself before us. But for so many of us, and I know for me personally, most often the moments where I've experienced Christ before me, seen, felt, sensed, is in the worst moments of life. When things have been taken from me, when I've failed, when I've lost, that somehow in those moments of pain, of grieving, of sorrow, of separation, though I've never want to live through him again or wish him on anyone else, that Jesus discloses his love for us and brings us into an awareness of his presence in those dark, painful, messy times. The story that comes to mind real quickly is about 11 years ago when Jen and I first had our first kid, when Emma was born. And she was four to six weeks old, really young, beautiful little girl and was starting to uh, vomit uncontrollably over and over again and so much so that she would be passing out couldn't even stay awake and went to the ER and um, kind of just a limp little body at that point they couldn't figure out what was wrong so we were in Corvallis at the time and they called us an ambulance to go up to uh, Dornbecker hospital in Portland and uh, she's 10 pounds and they uh, they, they say to me, can you put, put her on the gurney here so we can strap her away? And I said, no, there's no way I'm putting her down. They said, well, if you want to hold her, we'll strap you to the gurney. And so um, that's what I did. I got in the back of the ambulance on this bed holding um, my little month-old uh, only daughter and uh, drove through the night uh, up to Portland and all the way, they load me out of the, out of the ambulance down the hospital uh, halls and uh, people were looking and I didn't care because I wasn't going to put her down. And Jen, meanwhile, drives by herself up to Portland in her own car and meets us there. And I'm going, I, I, can't, I, I can't imagine what's, what kind of shape Jen's going to be in. We don't know if this is going to be the end of Emma's life or whatever. 
And I get there and um, see Jen and go, so how are you? And she goes, God's with us. I know that God is with us. And of course, she's scared and she's hurting. But she, we would both look back now on that moment of terror and uncertainty and say somehow in that hospital room, Jesus' presence was so strong that we knew everything was going to be okay, even if it wasn't. Turns out Emma was allergic to formula, right? So just kind of a picky eater, um, and everything was fine. After four days in Dornbecker, that's what we're dealing with. So um, some of you know what I'm talking about, though, that God is with me, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness. And so I have these moments on a regular basis where Christ is before me, where I can sense his presence in a powerful way. Um, And I'd say for every single one of those days I have where Christ is before me, I probably have 10, 20, 30 days where Christ is behind me. For every day that I get to feel like I see Jesus, I have 10, 20, 30 days where I don't where there's nothing in front of me that is all that invigorating or exciting or seems spiritual or sacred. It just kind of feels like life and it feels like work and it kind of feels like family and toil and all that kind of stuff. And so if I don't see Christ before me, what does that mean? It means he's behind me, unseen, still working, still present, still powerful, still good, still involved in every part of my life. And so in those days, in those weeks, in those months, maybe even in those years, I hold by faith the truth of the ascension that just because I can't see him in front of me doesn't mean he's not holding me up from behind. And I choose to believe what he told those disciples as he ascends, that I am with you always to the very end of the age. And though I'm unseen at times, you can trust that I'm present with you. A couple more. Christ on my right. In my strength. If you're left-handed, switch that around. But for most of us, when I'm at my best, when I'm operating out of my giftedness, when I've found my sweet spot in relationships with God and myself and others and creation, when I'm healthy, when I'm growing, when I'm thriving, when I'm succeeding, when I'm effective, Christ is present and to receive glory and praise and honor and thanks in those moments. At my right and Christ at my left in my weakness, in my failure, when I am overwhelmingly aware of my inadequacy, of my immaturity, of my deficiencies, those places in my life where I feel like I'm writing with my left hand. I don't know about you, there's times where I feel like my whole life is with my left hand, right? It's like, I don't like that. Christ on my left, when I'm at my best, when I'm at my worst, when I'm in my sweet spot, and when I'm desperate for gracious divine intervention. Two more. Christ all around me, 
the cosmos saturated with the presence of God. That heaven isn't a distant place, but that it is all around us. Now, here's what's so interesting about this idea of ascension, this story of Christ's ascension. That the language that the New Testament would use to describe our relationship with Jesus isn't just that we are with him or next to him or becoming like him, but the New Testament would actually use the language of in him. It's the doctrine of our union with Jesus that we now, because of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and gift of his spirit, we have been brought into this new reality, given a new name, given a new relationship that can only be used, that the only word we can use to describe how close it is, is that Christ is in me and I am in Christ that his life has become mine. His name has become mine. His intimate relationship with the Father has become mine. His empowering Holy Spirit has become mine. That I am now in Christ, and Christ is in me. And so if that's true, then the fact that there is now a man in heaven a human being in heaven who sits at the right hand of God in perfect communion with the Father, and I'm in him. I am in him. That my current relationship, I know this requires some theological imagination, but my current relationship with, with God is not based on how good I was yesterday or how bad I'm going to be today, but my standing with God is within Jesus the Son who sits in perfect, harmonious, loving, joyful relationship with the Father. There's a man in heaven in perfect communion with God and you are in him. Christ all around me. So God is not far. God is not distant. If I want to speak to God, I'm not throwing prayers way out into outer space, but I'm sitting in the arms of my Father. In Christ, complete, direct, unhindered, permanent access. And finally, Christ within me. The goal of every Christian is to have Christ's life formed in us. That we would be people that are conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus. And that as we run this race with him, throughout the 60, 70, 80, 90, whatever years we have on earth, that each day and each challenge and each joy and each relationship is an opportunity for us to grow into Christ, for his heart to become our heart, for his mind to become our mind, for the things that he loves and cares about to become the things that we love and care about, that every part of our being would be conformed to his image. And so this prayer, the idea that Christ is within me, being formed in me, is a call to pay attention to those places where Jesus is wanting to give his life to us, form his face in us. And the truth is, we talk a lot about somebody becoming a Christian, using Christian as a noun. But the emphasis of discipleship 
is not about becoming a Christian, it's about becoming Christian. Adjective. How long does it take to become a Christian? A couple minutes, really. You repent of your sin, you trust Jesus, you maybe get baptized, and now you're a Christian. How long does it take to become Christian? It takes our entire lives, doesn't it? To have our entire life shaped into the image of Jesus. And so Christ within me is an acknowledgement of this invitation that he's not done with you yet. That the person you are today is not the person you're going to be in one, five, 10, 20 years. That Jesus hasn't given up on you yet. He's not done with you yet. And so we come here to gather in worship, in prayer, in scripture, and in song to open up our lives and to call our attention to the exalted glory of Christ, but also to the loving humility of Christ. That Christ is on my right, on my left, beneath me, above me, below me, and in me, and wanting more of my life to become his. One of the ways that Jesus is present to us is in the gift of the bread and the cup that he offers himself to us in a special way, that we would come by faith to this table of fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And my encouragement this morning, we offer communion every week, if you would like to come and receive, is to actually pause for a moment at the table and to pray, to be with God, to listen, to speak, to thank, to confess, to ask, don't feel like you need to cycle through because people are standing behind you. Just take a moment and commune with God and receive this wonderful gift of his presence. Will you stand with me? King Jesus, we acknowledge you as Lord you and you alone are Lord of the universe, King of all creation. In a time where there's all kinds of division and dissension and polarization around human government and politics, we stand here today as your gathered people and declare that you are our Lord. You are the Lord of the earth and your sovereignty reigns and rules amongst us. We invite you to come this morning by your spirit, to meet us in this place, and if you would choose, even to reveal yourself in a way that we can sense. But if not, we receive by faith the fact that you are behind us, around us, within us, and even in ways we aren't aware of. And what incredible joy and freedom we have. And so I pray, Lord, as we've met with you here today, as we respond in worship and in prayer, as we are sent out into the world, Lord, that we would live with this adventurous spirit of discovering all the wild and unexpected places that you might want to show yourself to us within our own lives, homes, families, communities, workplaces, wherever, Lord. Give us an attentiveness to your permeating presence and your redeeming love. In Jesus' name, amen.